bring on the next 25 weeks. Come on. Um, I don't know if everyone's as excited as I am. But last week we looked at who were the Ephesians, uh, who was Paul and his remarkable conversion story and ministry to the church that was formed in Ephesus. And finally, what was this impartation of grace and peace that he greets them with in this letter? Uh, And I've heard there was lots of great discussion in the life groups this week, so that's good to hear too. Well, this week, we're going to venture four more verses into Ephesians. We are really flying, people. Um, If you get a handout each week, you can grab one of these on the way in, and that traces the story of Ephesians. And Gus, you just go to the next verse. We were in the yellow last week. We've moved all the way to the pink. So we are really charging. Uh, What I want us to do this evening is to consider, what does it mean to be blessed in Christ? Uh, What does it mean to be chosen and predestined? Yes, we are going there. Uh, And finally, I want to explore this theme of adoption, which is one of the greatest gifts that we are given as the children of God. So, I think the Bible verse is going to be up there, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6. Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Amen. Well, firstly, just a word about reading Paul and this amazing passage. Uh, After Paul's opening greeting to the church in Ephesus that he wrote while he was in a prison cell in the capital of the Roman Empire in Rome in 62 AD. He writes to the church he had helped establish in Ephesus and he launches into this magnum opus, this masterpiece description of the good news of the gospel. And so in this very first part of Ephesians, he is going to list all of the blessings of the gospel in a believer's life. He has one long, very well-crafted sentence that is full of the gospel. And we're going to take two weeks, but uh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, is just one long sentence. To be honest, I don't know if you've read Ephesians, but if you just read it, it's quite a hard uh, sentence to read in English because it is just so packed with ideas and thoughts and themes and clauses. And the old joke about Paul is, you know, us mere mortals think in sentences, but Paul thought in paragraphs. So in the original Greek, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, it's one long sentence, 202 Greek words, and it opens up every blessing we have as those who are in Christ. Um, Scholar Andrew Lincoln, he says, uh, every thought builds on the previous one. And it is all reasons for us to join Paul in verse 3 in declaring, praise be to God, praise be to God. This is a reason to worship. Everything that God does in the world in Jesus Christ leads us to worship. 
Um, as my old professor J.I. Packer used to say, uh, theology always leads to doxology. Knowing God always leads to worship of God. So Paul, in this one sentence, is caught up in the riches of the gospel. So firstly, he reminds us that we are blessed to be in Christ. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now we're just three verses into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we are already encountering this phrase, in Christ, for the second time. Paul wants us to know, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessings because of where we are now located. Are you with me? Now, we live in a city, do we not, where location matters? In fact, many of us are obsessed with location. Uh, As a general rule, we want to be near the water or near the city. Or uh, in Todd from the morning services case, he just wanted to be near me. And so he bought a house six doors up. Um... But location matters. And in city, you pay through the nose, don't you, for proximity to the things that we want. But where we are located often shapes how we see and how we interact with the world. Well, in 62 AD, from a prison cell, Paul reminds the Christian church in Ephesus, in this letter, that they now live, yes, in Ephesus, but more importantly, on a deeper level, they now live in Christ. That is why they praise God, because that is their new address. Indeed, Paul may be languishing in a prison cell in Rome, but on a deeper level, he knows that where he truly lives is in Christ. So he'll go on to say, in Christ, 34 more times, in the letter to the Ephesians. It's possibly the defining phrase of Paul's life. He was convinced that there was a spiritual or a heavenly world that was breaking into the brokenness of this existence. So no matter where he was, no matter what he was going through, no matter his circumstances, no matter his physical location, on the deepest, most profound level, Paul was located in Christ. And it's the same for us, no matter what our circumstances might be, no matter where we live physically, we're in Sydney, we have different challenges, we have different circumstances, we have different stories, but that does not define us. Our true location is in the heavenly places in Christ. It's why later in Ephesians 2.19, he says, you are fellow citizens with God's people. And you are members of his household. So your deepest identity, your deepest location, your deepest citizenship, your deepest household is in Christ. Uh, In the Bible, reality is multi-layered. The authors of the Bible would tell us that beyond what we experience as reality, there is more. They would say this is why the world is as it is. It's not just that there's our conscience, kind of our thought life, and the physical environment that we can touch and feel. But they would say that the reason the world is the way it is, is because there is another realm. There is a spiritual reality, a spiritual realm. And so when things go wrong, 
in Western culture. It must be solved through our minds or the environment. But for Paul, there was a spiritual reality. There was this heavenly realm or dimension. And Jesus talked about this. He talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, signs of the kingdom of heaven breaking in in our midst with miracles and deliverance. John Lennon famously sung, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell. And I think that is the mainstream of thought running through much of modern Western culture and society. It might be called something like secular materialism, right? What you see is what you get. There is nothing more beyond that. And I think even as Christians, many of us, it's very easy for us to fall back into living with no reference to spiritual things. We can easily become practical atheists, right? We don't live like this spiritual realm is still permeating our existence. But when Paul speaks of the heavenly realms, he talks about another reality that surrounds and permeates what we experience. Now he knows this most primarily, most intimately, because of his conversion story on the road to Damascus, right? Heaven broke in all around him. He saw the heavenly realm. He had the vision of Jesus. He heard the voice of the one he was persecuted and he became converted. And he experienced that spiritual realm or reality for the rest of his life. And so we, in Christ, also experience and live in that dimension. Yes, we live in our minds. Yes, we live in the natural world. But we also know that there is a spiritual realm to which we are a part. And you may have heard a phrase like some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. But I would suggest that those with heaven on their minds are the most useful. Because we see things clearly, do we not? We, we, we know that there is spiritual darkness and that there is spiritual light. We know that there are spiritual powers, there is evil activity in this world that is the reason for so much addiction and suffering and abuse of power. But we also know that there is a kingdom of heaven to which we belong that is breaking in around us. And that's why we pray, don't we? Your kingdom come. We long for that spiritual realm to break into our existence and to make things right again. So we may live in Sydney. We may face all kinds of circumstances and challenges, but we on a much deeper level now live in the heavenly realms in Christ. So Paul goes on to say, in praising God that we are chosen. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So Paul now moves on and he reminds those who live in Christ that the grounds for their salvation is not in ourselves, but is the gift and initiative of God. He chose us. He chose us. And the Greek word translated as chosen is exelexado, which in our language we get words like election from, right? So Paul wants us to know that we have been elected We have been chosen to be a part of God's people. Now, of course, as soon as we see words like chosen, 
and predestined. It brings up all kinds of questions. Does that mean that God chose some to be saved and some to be condemned? Um, How would that square with the idea that we all have free will? That we can exercise our own cognitive abilities to choose what we want to do? And all the verses that seem to suggest that we need to choose as to whether to confess Jesus as Lord, right? So take, for example, Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So it suggests, doesn't it, we need to believe and confess in order to become part of the family. So that verse and so much of the scripture seems to suggest that we need to use our free will to follow Jesus. It's not just a pre-known inevitability. So it raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Predestination. Now I know a third of you are scratching your heads thinking, what on earth is he talking about? A third of you are probably thinking, don't go there. And a third of you are probably thinking, this is the greatest moment you've ever had at church. We're talking about predestination. Well, let me just make one or two comments. Uh, Fully aware that greater minds than mine have wrestled with this, debated and argued this and come to different conclusions. Okay, so it's okay to come to a different place. But I would simply say that I think that we read these verses Uh, where Paul in Ephesians talks about being chosen before the beginning of creation, about being predestined. I think we read them in an overly individualistic way. Right? And that's kind of been um, a result of the Enlightenment and, you know, in the 16th century, and we primarily think of ourselves as individuals, and that that's kind of the highest um, way of thinking about how the world is made up. And we might think, you know, God has chosen me. You know, maybe I thought I chose to follow God, but in his sovereignty, maybe it was God all along who from before creation knew I would accept him. And he's conspired all along that I would become a believer. You know, and people who have a kind of very strong Calvinist background, very reformed theology, kind of see God sovereignly working in those kind of ways. Uh, But the the flip side of thinking of that, of course, is that so-and-so down the road has not been chosen. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with. But of course, the language of chosen does it not go back to the Old Testament when God chooses the people. He elects one family from amongst all the nations and families of the world and he chooses them to be his family. Now, of course... I mean, Murray preached about this. There were disobedient people within the chosen people of God who didn't follow him. But collectively, you would still say that they were the chosen people, God's special possession. Now, this is where I'm at. Uh, I think in the same way, we can read this passage, not individually, but as the church. We are his chosen people. But we still have the free will to respond to his love or to turn away. Think of it this way. Uh, Last year, we we ran a really fantastic movie night for the young families up here at the church. And I think uh, Chris and I, we chose that we'd watch the movie Sing. Uh, But on that day, many of the families, they had to respond to the invitation and either come to the movie night 
or reject the invitation. But if you came to the movie night, you could well and truly say, uh, Tim predestined three months ago that we would watch Sing. But notice I didn't predestine you individually to watch the movie. What I predestined is that whoever shows up at this family movie night would watch Sing. Now that you've decided, maybe even on the very last day, to be a part of the movie night, what was predestined for the whole becomes predestined for you. You kind of with me? Greg Boyd, uh, a fantastic American theologian and pastor, puts it this way. Here's a slide, Gussie. He says, so too, from the foundation of the world, God predestined that whoever is in Christ would become holy and blameless in his sight. But he didn't predestine certain individuals as opposed to other unfortunate individuals to be in Christ. That is left up to your choice. Now that you've chosen to be in Christ, what was predestined for the group becomes predestined for you. So you with Paul can say that in Christ, we who have chosen to believe were predestined to be holy and blameless. Right? That's how I read it. No one's got up and left yet. That's okay. So (laughs) that's all right. There's some great churches down the road that hold some different views. Uh, (laughs) It's okay to disagree on these things. But, you know, part of it for me is I take passages like 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4 seriously. It says, this is good, pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire. He wants manly life to have 15 services a day. He wants St. Matt's to have 15 services a day. He wants every church in this area to be full of people who have been saved. His desire is that every single person that you meet will come to know the love of God. That's God's desire, that all people will be saved. And, And just personally, I could never believe that God could choose some to be condemned when he wants all to know his love. So, some Christians believe more in free will. We're called Arminians, if you want to get technical. Some people believe more in the sovereignty and the individual predestination of every believer. They're generally called Calvinists or more reformed. And there are people I love in the faith who take both views. It's okay. Uh, But I really believe that we need to read the scripture like first century Jews and Gentiles and less like 16th century Calvinists in Geneva, right? Because I think that individualism has kind of skewed the way we read the Bible. So we need to believe, we need to choose, but then we join what has always been predestined by God. And what did he predestine by God? That he would love and, and save a people who would belong to him and then would get on with seeing his kingdom come in this world. All right, no one's walked out. Good. All right, final thing today. Final thing. God chooses us and he does it to become holy and blameless as we are adopted into his family. Verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In the Roman world, when this letter was written, a wealthy man would obviously want to pass on their riches 
to an heir. And if they had no son of their own, or if the relationship was so badly broken down that they couldn't pass on their riches, what they would do is amongst their trusty servants is they would choose one whom they would adopt for themselves as an heir. And it would become a legal process. You would be adopted by this wealthy Roman family. And on the death of that man, uh, you would inherit all that belonged to his home. Can you imagine how a servant would feel about this? From rags to riches overnight. No longer a servant. No longer someone who does just the jobs around the house. And at a click of a fingers could be fired and cast away and sent off. But now they would be adopted to become an heir. It would be like winning the lotto. From a place outside the family to now destined to inherit all the blessings of being in the family. Enlisting the riches of the gospel. In declaring the reasons to give praise to God. Paul wants us to know that we, entering into God's plan to save the world and create a people for himself, a people that would be heirs to all the riches of being part of God's family, a people who would become transformed to become holy and blameless, that all this would happen through the gift of adoption. And this happens out of sheer, utter grace. God chooses broken humanity like me and he welcomes me into the family through his son, Jesus Christ. J.R. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel affords us. Adoption is a higher privilege, he says, even than justification in which God declares that we are no longer liable to the punishment that we deserve. Packer says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. In adoption, God establishes you and I as heirs, as his beloved children. And in that we find a closeness and an intimacy of relationship and generosity that is at the heart of any good family. I love the Alpha course. We're going to be kicking off the course this Wednesday night. You are still so welcome to join us, 7pm up at the church. But there's a clip I want to show you in just a second to uh, show you just to finish that to me just sums up the riches of adoption. Let's watch it. Gemma is just starting to talk about the nature of our relationship with God. experienced a home and love and acceptance all through his childhood. 
And a few years ago, he actually wrote to his adoption agency and asked them to send his birth mother a letter. And he said, I just wanted to let you know that you did the right thing. I know you didn't want to give me up, and you probably wondered for years where I am. But I need you to know that you did, that I had a wonderful life, and I thank you for what you did for me. True adoption is knowing that you're accepted and loved no matter what, that you have a home and that you belong. And Steve has found that with his family. And he sometimes forgets he's adopted, even though to the rest of us it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Why don't we stand together?